we all know that at the end of the day, they're web pages that are like, that's all the customer cares about. They get their HTML, their CSS, and their JavaScript. However it gets there, doesn't matter. So the more we can make that easier for people to do, the better it is. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Developer Experience, a podcast by Algolia. We chat with guests who build products for developers about their developer experience strategy, what it means for them, why it's important, and so on. On today's episode, we are going to talk about the challenges of providing amazing developer experience for a wide variety of technical stacks. How do you consistently provide incredible DX to everyone when what you're building is not specific to a single platform? How do you properly think of such systems? And to answer those questions today, I have Ben Hong with me. Ben is a staff developer experience engineer at Nellify, one of the most popular serverless platforms to build and deploy web apps. He's also very present in the Vue.js community as a member of the core team and as a Vue mastery instructor. Hello, Ben. Hello. All right, so let's dive in. I'm a big fan of Netlify. I really use it a lot. And as a front-end engineer myself, when I hear Netlify, to me, it's like Netlify, Jamstack. Same thing, goes hand in hand. When you look at the Jamstack ecosystem in and of itself, it's already pretty wide. You know, you have many different libraries like in JavaScript, but not only uh, Hugo and Jekyll, so many different languages. And then on top of that, you have the frameworks, Gatsby, Noxt, etc. But even then, when I go on the Netlify website, I see that you support solutions like Drupal or WordPress, which traditionally are dynamically rendered, like you give a Jamstack spin to that. So I'm interested, how do you decide what to support and how do you make sure that you can actually sustain it? So as you mentioned at Nellify, one of our goals is really to make it as easy as possible for developers to build and ship modern web applications as possible. And I think one of the things about like the origin of Jamstack is that, because it was originally defined as like JavaScript, right, API and markup. And so it was like, well, if there's no JavaScript, it can it be Jamstack. And really, if we think about it, like the reason Jamstack even came up was because we had this whole era of single page applications, right? We were deploying these like, um, you know, single index.html. We were using JavaScript to rendering everything. And so in really, if we think about a lot of technological concept, this was kind of a throwback to the way things kind of were, quote unquote, originally done, right? You ship as little HTML or like just enough for the client to, to get started. And so when it came to like support, really, it's about figuring out how to generate the most impact, right? Certainly popularity is a consideration when a lot of people use it, because if you know that, for example, like WordPress powers a large percentage of sites on the web, then certainly we want to make sure that we have support for it, even though WordPress is traditionally more PHP and there's really not as much JavaScript on it. We still want to make it as easy as possible for you to ship, call it a headless WordPress CMS with the things that you might want to build otherwise. And so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of like what goes into it as far as support since like to your point it is tricky when you have so many different libraries and so i think the team is constantly looking at how can we make sure that we help improve the web and get developers to ship quicker with their solutions yeah that makes a lot of sense i i love what you said about uh like it's it doesn't have to be specifically javascript and that's like when it comes to gemstack while i believe if you take a step back it's not 
about JavaScript. It's really more about building and using tools and using specific technologies where they're good at. And what I love is that when you think of Jamstack, for example, it's not that you have to ditch WordPress, like you can still use it. It's a pretty darn good piece of software. For editing, it makes a lot of sense. A lot of people are already trained on it. But should it be the part that renders your UI, that renders your website? Maybe not. Do you need to have your own server that you build, like that you run and you keep an eye on it, etc.? Maybe not because what you have may not be as dynamic as you think, or maybe you only have a few parts that are dynamic. It's kind of the same idea that you have with Algolia. Like, should you own your own search engine? Should it be hosted on your own server? Do you need it to be done on the backend? Like, do you really need it when you realize what every piece of the pipe, whether it's the server, the client, like that, this and that language, you realize that all have really interesting strengths and weaknesses. And to me, that's really this idea of building SaaS products like that and build, building those kinds of platforms is that really focusing on where you can bring the most value and piecing that together. To me, that really goes back to the initial concept of developer experience. Maybe some people like it, but when you are a front-end engineer, you're especially in many companies, when you're a front-end engineer, you're probably going to be the one who's responsible of the website, like the entire website. You may not have a team, a fully dedicated team of people working on the website, but are you comfortable operating a server? Are you comfortable making sure that this build step happens in the right way or that you use the right CI or whatever? Maybe not. And so that's what I find really interesting about services like Netlify is that it really integrates with what you have, but it takes away the common parts that you don't want to care about. Yeah. And I think to your point, again, Jamstack evolved out of its time as far as like its timing of the ecosystem with a single page applications. But it really is like an architectural concept regarding trying to simplify this idea that when you're deploying things that you keep them in an atomic way that you abstract away these problems that we all had to deal with, right? Of us who used to actually directly FTP our files onto the server, dealing with caching and all that stuff. You want to focus on solving your problems, not these common problems that everyone keeps solving over and over again. So to your point, like services like Netlify and Algolia, like helping you to abstract those problems away so you can focus on, you know, solving your customer needs rather than these solutions that, you know, Algolia has done a wonderful job. Like we have such a great time using it on the view doc side, just to know that like we don't have to come up with our own search solution for all our docs and we can focus on writing great docs. So we're really grateful to tools like Algolia. So how do you actually decide what to support? Because Netlify is a universal platform. It's not tied to a specific technology. How do you keep an eye on what's going on in the Jamstack ecosystem? Or like, I would even say like in the realm of website making, how do you keep an eye on that? What's your strategy around deciding, oh, that's actually interesting. It's getting traction. This maybe not so much. Like what's the strategy around that? So I think it's you bring up an excellent point, right? I think a running theme we'll see in this episode is that it's not about whether it's a jam stack, a specific technology, but instead, how does it impact the web, right? Because we're about shipping web applications. And so when it comes to deciding these technologies, so the Nellify, we have an entire team devoted to developer experience. And so each of us does cover like specific areas. So we have Jason, who came from like the Gatsby community, Cassidy, who focuses on like the sort of the React generic overall. I cover Vue and we have Tara, who does Angular, Phil, sort of more generic like JavaScript frameworks like Eleventy. 
And we have Kenny here also providing support. Because everyone's tapped into different ecosystems, we have the ability to kind of listen with our ear to the ground as far as what's going on and like what kind of conversations are happening around the web. Because we're talking about it doesn't have to be JavaScript. Let's Rust is making quite a bit of noise, right, within the community as far as potential improvements. And so should one day there's like a really major Rust framework that really helps to let people ship things faster, that's something we want to invest in because, again, our goal is to get people to ship faster, right? As we know in software development, the more you can iterate on something at a, in an inexpensive way, the faster we are to make changes and improvements to it. It's when you have the really long build times, the tests that take 20 hours to run. Those are the times where like people start being afraid to make change because the feedback loop is so long. And so I think these are some of the things we constantly look at because, again, if we're about shipping and iterating faster, then we got to figure out make sure we keep our ears to the ground as far as those tools to invest in. You actually brought up a really interesting point is that you have a developer experience team, like fully dedicated to developer experience. And within that team, and I remember reading what your former VP, Sarah Drasner wrote, she wrote an interesting article on that on the Netlify blog, how this team is composed. And you have within that, you have even people focused like you are on DX specifically and community aspects. And it looks like you have specialists on many facets uh, of the Jamstack. And that to me is really fascinating. I'm wondering like, is this by design? Is this on purpose? Is this like part of a strategy or did it really just happen? Like it happened to that Netlify had someone interested in React, had someone interested in Vue, had someone interested in Angular. Is it something like you make sure to keep, to preserve so that you can have an ear and a, like a voice in every community? On top of that, like how does that help keeping the bar high across the board with everything you build at Netlify? I can't speak for, you know, Sarah's hiring practices at the time. But to me, though, as far as like my impressions, it does seem keeping specialists in the different communities is something that was entirely intentional. Because if we think about it, like one of the things that's trickiest about, I think, development is that when we get kind of used to a stack that we're comfortable working in, that sometimes we forget to look outside the box and what other people are doing, right? Because, you know, we talked about React, Angular, and Vue, for example, but Svelte obviously is making a lot of noise. And there's a lot of people who really love things about Svelte. And I think it would be a travesty for teams to ignore that these up and coming frameworks, because when people create new solutions, there obviously is a problem missing there, right? Or new ideas to play with. Recently, like ES Build is starting to really become a thing, right? With tools like Vite, Snowpack. If we were to just say that, oh, it's not that popular yet, but we ignore it, like this is how I think companies or teams would miss the opportunity to like really innovate on their technology. From that regard, I'd say it is good to have that sort of diversity of opinion. So you can have people's perspectives to reflect on things when you go like, this is the perfect solution and that I've seen, but it's oftentimes they're catered to a certain customer with a certain kind of tech stack. Because a lot of us, we talked about, right? We're just talking about JavaScript frameworks, but what about people in the WordPress ecosystem and other headless CMSs, databases? And that's why part of our job too, is also diversify the things that we learn about so that we can keep a broad perspective on tooling in the community. That's actually a, an interesting point because you have a lot of people in your team who are really knowledgeable about the JavaScript ecosystems. Like you're part of the Vue core team. So obviously your team can rely on you on anything new or upcoming in Vue that should not be missed. Same for the React Gatsby uh, next, like Cassidy and Jason will be on top of that. Now WordPress, like 
whatever anybody says, WordPress is still extremely present, not only extremely present, powering a huge chunk of the web. There are really cool, interesting features that come out, like it has a REST API for a while, but like the Gutenberg API keeps on improving, etc. But you don't necessarily have someone who's a specialist on WordPress on the team. And so how do you manage to preserve great developer experience on stacks that you are not familiar with, that you don't have anybody who is specialized on that and who will have a natural appeal at keeping up with that community? One of the things I really love about my team is that everyone here has a, a real appetite for learning and trying new things. And so while we've all become specialists in our respective domains, for example, Jason has his Learn With Jason show where he brings on new guests every week to talk about new tooling and that kind of thing. Um, we're encouraged at Netlify to go out and explore those things. And so, for example, whether it's working with the Shopify CMS and building things with new tools, a lot of us on the team use what we have as a base to then go out and just keep expanding on that knowledge. Because once again, I find that innovation often comes from the most unexpected places. And so I'm always eager to just see how are other people doing it, right? How are they thinking of these problems? And so whether it's building demos using, for example, like Vue with the headless WordPress, those are the kind of things we're given the freedom to explore because our team is trusted to figure out like what we think might be the most impactful within our given communities as well as how it might also add up to on a larger scale as far as the impact for the web as a whole. I can definitely recognize that at Algolia, it's been definitely quite challenging, especially because we have many integrations. Like we have integrations with many different languages, frameworks, etc. And the more I think about it, the more I'm like, DX should be a shared responsibility. It's not like everything will be on the integration. Like there's common stuff there's common logic, there's com common aspect that probably always need to be handled at a lower level. The more things you can shove into the part that you, anybody and everybody can share, the better. Because when you think about, let's say, okay, let's take Gatsby, for example. What's important when you think about Gatsby in the context of a service like Algolia or Netlify is that it should be the most Gatsby-esque experience. That's the role of this aspect, like Gatsby, this strategy, this part of the product. It should be about being the, the more Gatsby X experience for the person that's using it. Anything else should probably be at a lower level. And so that, you know, that layering aspect to me is really core to the problem. Thinking in layers and making sure that every part is really responsible for what it is strong about, what matters about it. And that's not really just an engineering issue. It's really a, a product problem. It's how you design things. So every part solves the exact problem that it is going to be good at. I think that's really important to highlight here is the DX team at Netlify in particular is just one aspect of how we manage DX across the entire company, right? So my team specifically with Jason, Cassidy, Tara, Phil, and Kenny, we represent a very specific team within Netlify as far as like community outreach. So, uh, you know, obviously coming on and being able to talk with you, writing blog posts, creating content, as well as exploring and interacting with the communities. But we're not also solely responsible for DX across the company. We have integration teams who are responsible for like the engineering aspect of taking what the things we've learned about and bringing it back into the core product and figuring out how they can improve that. It's really important to highlight that there's a lot of teamwork going on and a lot of different teams involved in making Netlify what it is. As a VUE core member, how have you witnessed that being part of this community as also helped inject better DX at Netlify and maybe vice versa? How maybe did you witness that your involvement at Netlify and in being 
in that space? Like it's probably the most popular platform. Did it help or did you witness it help when it comes to how you think of new features on Vue, on ViewPress, on VidPress? My involvement with the Vue community, I think has been a mutually beneficial one. One of the things I really love about the Vue community is that it's always willing to learn from others, right? It doesn't try to reinvent the wheel. And it says when the framework does something well, it tries to explore that concept and figure out, it does this solve the problem well? And so, for example, Evan's been playing lately with like a sugar ref um, RFC, right? Request for change, where it actually kind of mimics the Svelte syntax, which a lot of people find really weird, right? Because it's not traditional JavaScript. These are the kind of things that are great to think about because for technology to move forward, we have to be willing to try new things that might feel foreign. Because I think a lot of people, especially in tech now, forget that like a lot of things you're familiar with with vanilla JavaScript, you know, quote unquote, is actually things that came from the jQuery days. Like it was an external library that like they did such a good job with it. They made it part of the core. And so when libraries are trying new things, I think we have an inherent like, oh no, that's not the view way or the React way. Like to me, it's like if it solves a problem that helps to move the web forward, that is the more important thing rather than sort of being comfortable with like the one way of doing things. And so similarly, you know, in the Netlify ecosystem, uh, I am always really happy to learn how other people are doing things. Because one of the challenges that we have with deployment of websites is what happens when you're when you want to have long build times? How do we solve that problem? And so, you know, learning from the different architectures and thinking about how we can make a solution that works well across the web is one of those things where, yeah, it's super exciting to see all the different solutions and try to piece together what makes the most sense. I think that's what Vue, I think I learned a lot from Vue. It's like abstract away certain things, right? So example, we have the template block, which is basically HTML. But there are a lot of people that are like, oh, well, sometimes I really need programmatic HTML. I need JSX. Great. We have a render function for you. But like in the 90% of use cases where you don't need a render function, just use HTML. That I know that guides a lot of the ethos as far as my creation of tooling and solutions. That's actually a really good segue to, to something that I wanted to ask you. Like you briefly mentioned the way you build. You know, when you think about static site generation, especially when that's something that you're really familiar with, it may look like, oh, it's a solved problem. You know, yeah, okay, you're going to compile a website. You're going to push to Git and then you're going to specify what your build command is and then the directory in which the files are going to be. And then that's it. But what I find really interesting is that it also means new problems, you know, like new patterns are starting to emerge. When you think of Next.js, for example, they created what they call incremental static regeneration, ISR. And the goal is to basically avoid long builds when you have large websites. So instead of recompiling everything, you're going to compile on demand. But such a feature it's not just one new thing. It's also, it has implication. It has consequences on the infrastructure. And so I'm wondering, because that might be an easy problem when all you focus on is next. It, like, it has its challenges. But on top of that, when you're Netlify, you are a universal platform. You need to cater to everybody, including Next.js, but not only. When you have such a responsibility of catering to many communities, but you need to stay abstract enough, how do you keep up with those kinds of problems that need probably more tech than you initially intended for that problem? You know, we're talking about long tail bills, right? So, you know, for the audience who might be new to, to this problem, imagine you have an e-commerce site, right? Like, let's say it has thousands of items. But the truth is, is that maybe only like 100 of your items are the ones that are kind of most frequently visited. And so with the traditional static site generation model, every time you build a site, you need to generate all thousand pages along with anything else that results. 
But at the same time, part of you probably also wonders, like, is that really necessary? Right, because that result in long build times, which then, as we talked about earlier, like that increased the amount of time it takes to get feedback. The concept being talked about here, um, which we're sort of terming like distributed persistent rendering, is this idea that what if you could only build the files that you needed upfront? So you you marked these specific pages as like these are the main ones that need to go immediately. And then in the future, if anyone requests anything that's like outside of that realm and we have the data for it, we will then generate those pages for you dynamically and then cache them according to that build. And so this is sort of another solution, like we're terming it on-demand builders and Netlify. And so this is part of the challenge part, right? When we create solutions, we want them to be in a way that like solves everyone's problems. It's sort of a generic solution that applies to your framework regardless. And the reason that's important is because as we know, frameworks do come and go. We happen to be in kind of like a nice period where frameworks seem to be stabilizing, but we know that it doesn't take much in technology to have all of that disrupted and have the kind of the ecosystem switch. And so similarly to how we try to automate deployment in a way that's like not specific to a specific framework, we want to make sure that similarly, when you're trying to create these sort of architectural patterns that allow you to define core pages and then the ones that will be returned later, we wanted to think, how can we make it easier for framework authors and whatever frameworks come up in the future to also leverage these architectural models so that they can then take advantage of it without feeling like, oh, well, this is the view way of rendering things versus like the React way of rendering things, right? We all know that at the end of the day, they're web pages that are like, that's all the customer cares about. They get their HTML, their CSS, and their JavaScript. However it gets there, doesn't matter. So the more we can make that easier for people to do, the better it is. You mentioned it. We're probably in a sweet spot right now because there a lot of things are stable and there's more and more qualified people working on it. The experimentation is usually a bit more fruitful than it was back in the days where we're transitioning between the old way of doing uh, making website or building JavaScript or anything in relationship to, to what we have today. Now, one thing to, to stress is that it is okay to take the time to really find the right angle because when you think about ISR or DPR, like it's not just a new hot feature. It's one solution to a symptom of a bigger topic in Jamstack for, for that matter. That's okay to take the time to really think about it from a higher level. We see it in Anglia every day. Like we have customers who have very specific requests and that's actually awesome, you know, because it gives us concrete application examples, but it doesn't mean that we have to jump on it and make it work as is. We can take the time, you know, to reflect and, you know, take a step back and think about it more holistically. And to me, that makes sense. Like, that's really the role that you have when you build such platforms. In a way, like that was the initial idea with network-based APIs, right? We need access to a functionality and regardless of what it is, in what language it's written, we just want to have access to that thing in a way that works for everything. And so then this abstraction came in and it powers a huge part of the web. Like you have webhooks, et cetera, all built on top of that. And that, that's also what Algolia evolved to. I, I don't know if you know the story, but we used to be a mobile offline search engine. That was Algolia at the very beginning. It was running on your phone. And now we are a REST API based. So we are able to actually power any kind of stack, anything that runs in a client can power Algolia. I think one good takeaway is that those problems that you see and those patterns, it can feel like, oh, that's the new thing. I need to hop, like jump on that horse. It's actually really much more interesting to take a step back and to think broader. 
what is the actual problem? What are we trying to solve? And how can we build something that's sustainable and that's probably, even if we don't know the future, that's probably going to span some future cases? Yeah, I really love that. This focus on the problem you're solving is something I think that a lot of engineers often forget, right? When you have the latest, hottest trend. Why are you implementing this, right? Why are you using static site generation, right? Everyone says to do it, but like maybe it makes more sense for yours to be like just a single, single page application, right? I think people forget, right? Every engineering decision you make comes with trade-offs. There's no perfect solution. Maybe it solves a problem in a perfect way, but it won't solve the same, like another problem in the same way. The other thing I think that's worth mentioning is you mentioned like as these concepts come up, right? Like we were talking about like DPR, ISR, this stuff. It's kind of interesting because I think for engineers who have been in the space for a while, it feels like a lot of the stuff coming back is the way that it was quote unquote used to be done, which is kind of interesting, right? Like a lot of front end theories are originating in back end. Like they're like, oh, back end did this years ago. And I think it's funny in the development culture of this need to like assign, oh, well, this came from this, this came from this, but really... If you ask me at the end of the day, are we solving problems? Are we moving forward? I think it's, that's much a much more fruitful discussion <laughs> over the whole like, well, you know that this is actually just basically server-side rendering. We've been doing this for 30 years. I prefer not to get into those sort of arguments with, with this kind of stuff. That's a very human thing, you know, to try and draw connections between things that you think are the same. Like, oh, there's the new thing. How does it relate to something that I already know? That, that's kind of reassuring for you to be able to put it in the same box because that that means that you probably don't have to learn it. But at the same time, what can be, as you said, more fruitful in the conversation is what kind of new problems are we solving? I say that it's, it's pretty reassuring that we are reusing work that has been developed a while ago. That would be probably sad to see that we are throwing everything and that all that work, that all that... So research or that all that knowledge, all that technology is really gone. Like there's nothing left from it. There's a lot to learn from how things used to be done. Even before static site generation was a hot word, like before the Jekyll days, basically, people used to statically generate some of their sites for security reasons. And back then, like most people thought they were crazy to do that because it was like, yeah, your website is not dynamic. Like, you know, to me, that's quite reassuring to go back to developer experience. That's the point of the, the conversation today is that you part of, to me, of the developer experience and having a good developer experience is to be able to reuse things that you already know is to be able to leverage the knowledge that you have. Not everybody comes in that space with the same baggage. Some people started as React developers, some people started as WordPress developers, whatever, even not even developers. But what's interesting is that we can reuse prior art to solve new problems. There are things that exist today that were not even a conversation back in the days. Things like, and now of course, like this is not a new problem, but when you think of stuff like responsive design, like I clearly remember that shift. There was a time where we didn't care at all about responsive web design. Nobody cared about it because nobody had a smartphone to where they wanted to look at a website. But today that's something like that's important. There are ways to think about that. But then the, I would say the more, the faster your computer is, you're probably less and less tolerant to performance lags. You know, you don't want anything to be slow when everything on your machine is, is really fast. And at the same time, you have people who can ha now access the internet who couldn't before 
but they are not doing it on the same devices that you and I are using. So those are new problems. And they are not technical problems. They are human problems. Then they are around individuals, around people accessing information. That's what technology is here to bridge. A lot of, actually, I think DX as well is about that incremental improvement, right? I think we oftentimes forget that technology, when we evolve, we took older concepts, right? Like you said, static site. For those who like built, who used to ship via FTP, that was technically all static, right? If we're using the the hot term. But really what we've done is like over time, we made it easier to do things that would have been tedious to do, right? Because those of us know that like when you deploy the same style, that CSS file multiple times, you have a weird caching thing, right? People don't get the same one. So what did we do? We started appending custom hashes to it. And so then this is why the build process started getting appended because we wanted it to make sure that we were deploying unique assets that people could actually get the newest thing faster. Um, and so a lot of times, like your, I think to your point, Sarah, like when we take ideas that have existed and we can increment them by just like, you know, 1%, but we consistently make that 1% increase. I think we forget that that has a compounding effect over time. And that's one of the reasons why we are in a little bit of a stickier situation now with like build tools and stuff, right? Because people are like, that is so complicated from what the way it used to be. But there are reasons why we needed this because the problems have advanced and they've gotten more trickier as we deal with, to your point, new devices and all these things. It's a fun space to be in. Definitely, yes. On the last episode, uh, we had Adam Wadden with us from Tailwind. And I really like the way that he summarized DX. He, he said basically that it is providing superpowers without getting in the way. I really love this definition. And again, when you're a generic service, like you, you're Netlify, you're Algolia, you care about many people, not a specific usage. You're not tied to a specific technology. How do you achieve that? How do you provide superpowers without getting in the way. And especially it's easy, you know, to care about the hot things and to have some that are left behind. So how do you, for example, ensure that Nux users feel as catered for as Gatsby users? And similarly, that Jekyll users don't feel left behind. One of the nice things I think about even though you're managing different frameworks, right? If you're running a tool that has, like you're servicing different customers, is that typically the users aren't necessarily, like they're not using Gatsby and Nuxt at the same time in those cases, right? But at the same time, I think when people feel like you've created a good developer experience for them, it's about kind of like to Adam's point, right? You're giving them, you're supercharging their path so that you can let them do something and then let them do it in a way that's not like as few configurations as possible. I think that's one of the key things to a lot of good developer experience for getting started, right? Because if you knew that like when you started the car, you had to like press all these buttons before putting in your key and then turning it on, right? Like that's a lot of work. And so the more we can reduce the barrier of entry into tooling and then allow to incrementally grow on it, right? This is one of the reasons why, for example, the Vue community also starts you with templates because we want to leverage what you already know with HTML. And then certainly when you have additional problems you want to solve, that we can then give you the render functions. We can give you other things to make it better. And so with Netlify as well, like a lot of people, I think with their entry point with Netlify is like deploying their sites, right? Making it easy so that each and every time you push a commit or you add a new branch that it creates those deploy previews for you and makes it so easy to integrate. Like all you do is hook up your GitHub repo, like you said, to like define the customizations. 
And so, for example, like you were talking about framework experience, right? And so this is why when you hook up a repo with Netlify, we try to detect in advance which framework you're using so we can automatically populate, right? It's one less thing that you have to go into your package.json to figure out what's your build command. And then like we automatically populate for that for you so that you can then ship it and then see how that goes. And then once you're there, then you can start being like, okay, now that everything's deploying really smoothly, I can start thinking about things like, how do I want my redirects to be? Or maybe we start integrating serverless functions into our application to make things easier and like unlock a whole world of possibilities. That's really the key is making people feel comfortable in the space that you're in so that they can then feel basically confident enough to then take that next step. All right. And so follow-up question would be, how does that scale? So many different platforms, so many different solutions. You can create a Jamstack website with different languages, different frameworks. How does that scale? How do you make sure that you can keep up with a wide variety uh, of tools? Nice thing about, especially the way that Nellify has architected it, is that, you know, with technology, it becomes... Luckily, our build tools aren't changing that quickly that we need things to be every day. And so as a result, we basically have a manifest and we figure out what the highest impact is as far as the sites that we see people trying to deploy with. And this is also why it's really important to be in touch with your community, right? Because you might have a lens as far as like your analytics and your metrics. But if you're actually listening to what the community is talking about, a lot of times that'll let you get ahead of things as far as like, this is a new framework that's coming up that people are trying out. And so that might be a job, for example, my team to go and build some test deployments and figure out how do those demos work in relation to our current workflow? And are there things we can learn and improve as far as that goes? Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I think it's also, it uh, highlights kind of a hybrid role that is starting to grow. And we call it developer advocate, but that term is really loaded. And in the mind of, of different people, it means different things, but I think there's something really interesting in having actual ICs, like people really building the tooling, building the production software, also being in the community and being involved and being around people and discussing with people. To me, the, the developer advocacy realm is really much bigger than what we have in mind from, for, from maybe five years ago. But that really outlines the necessity for engineers to be much more product oriented, which is actually really exciting, especially when you're building for developers, which is what we both do. We're building tooling for other developers. You are kind of your own customer. Like you're supposed to be interested in those problems because they are the problems that you want to solve for yourself. And it is much more interesting to be in touch with the community, in touch with the actual concerns that that people have because it's going to make you a better developer you have it's so much more interesting that when you can have an impact on the roadmap when you are able to say hey you know that thing is really what we should be looking at right now because when you're on the field that's something that you can see people are into that and if we don't do that we're going to miss the train to build on what you're saying i think this is what i think is what I really love about what Sarah did with the team and what I'd love to see more companies do is like with developer experience to allow them the opportunity to be basically hybrid engineers as well as advocates. Because I know that's something, I think that's a lot of the topic of discussion around this right now is that to your point, if you're not helping to build the product that you're helping to advocate for, it's kind of a weird separation, right? It, it actually synergizes really well when your advocates are also involved in product discussions. And Sarah did a really great job as far as helping to ensure that the Netlify DX team has that, like, has a voice in the engineering department as well as in product and just sort of having that all around. 
I can confirm even from the outside that Netlify is really the, probably the model for that. Like there is such a really great grasp at community in this company and we can see it from the outside. That's really amazing. Like the, the work you've done with the, the DX team is really incredible. I have one question for you specifically is, I'm going to put you on the spot with that. How do you specifically as a person, how do you define great DX? What is your level of expectation? All right. So to me, great developer experience is striking that balance between abstracting away a problem that people have consistently while leveraging models that they already have up to a point where it's the Pareto principle of where for 20% of effort, you get 80% of impact, right? I think this is where people feel really excited to keep continuing with the tool. However, I think there comes a point where it becomes overly opinionated. And when people need to break out of it, if you've locked themselves in too much, then this is where I think people do have the bad experience of like, you know, it was great at first. And then by the time I got in and then I had a problem that I needed to customize, it was like a nightmare to get out of it. To me, that's not good DX. It just means that you've solved one particular path and then you were like, good luck after that, right? <laughs> like, you know, if you did it my way, then you're great. But the moment you want to do it a different way, like to me, that's not necessarily good DX. That's just a really strong opinion. And then so this is why I think the other half of DX comes with the allowing people a way to then customize how they do things from there. So I, I like to call them escape patches. The more you can allow people to do that, I think the, the better you get to a point where you really do allow people to kind of customize the solution to really their own. For example, most of us don't want to be solving caching problems, <laughs> right? Like that's a problem. Most, we just want to build, develop. And we, as long as the customer gets what we like, the latest and greatest, we are happy. We don't need to know, you know, which caching methodology is being used. Like security protocols. How many of us want to be dealing with authentication, managing? Those are things you do kind of want to abstract away. And those, I would say, are great examples of where it might not necessarily make sense for you to allow someone to customize security credentials because that has a big foot gun, right? And so for those who aren't familiar with the term, it's just like ways for people, for developers to make mistakes that they can't come back from. So it really is a delicate balance of like providing enough opinion so that they feel empowered to get started, escape hatches to customize it, but then also like considering the foot guns of where, well, if we give developers this much power to customize, they might end up breaking things or they might end up like doing things that harm their customers, leaking sensitive data, that kind of stuff. In that case, let's shield them, right? And so, and as we mentioned before earlier in the show, there are always trade-offs, right? Like to some extent, you can always abstract things. To some extent, you can allow customization. But managing those trade-offs for your customers and listening to your community, I think, will be the key in striking that solid DX for your audience. That I, I really love with everything that you just said. And I think that's a, that's really a perfect point uh, to wrap on to. Ben, where can people go to find you online? Yeah, you can find me under the moniker Ben Code Zen. And so whether it's Twitter, YouTube, Twitch, I think I've got a handle on, I think I've got most of the platforms, luckily. And so if you're looking for me on whatever platforms I'm on, you just find me at www.bencodezen.io and you'll find all my stuff there. All right. And so you can find me at frontstuff underscore IO on Twitter. If you're looking for Algolia stuff, it would be on at Algolia on Twitter and you can find us on algolia.com. Ben, thank you so much for coming. Thanks so much. It's been great. This was Developer Experience, a podcast brought to you by Algolia. You can find this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. If you want to know more about Algolia, check us out at algolia.com and we are at Algolia on Twitter. Twitter.